According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Turn in the word of God as we get started to Matthew 14. Matthew 14:22. Be a good place to start. You also want to turn to Mark 6:45 and John 6:15. Tell you what, go to John 6. We'll use John 6 as our starting text. John 6:15. We'll even back up to verse 14 in John 6. We spent uh, a couple of weeks anyway on the feeding of the 5,000. If uh, the website's up to date, then we'll have an exact answer on that. Folks were asking if they if they miss a class, how hard is it to find out where they are? Um, they're pretty simple under audio files. The last two weeks are always there, but if you are just curious about the Life of Christ series itself, then... Uh, you come to this page, and there you see the return of the twelve. Jesus withdraws the five thousand fed, and you see the messages that are available there. So Mr. Garlic has been doing a wonderful job keeping this page and, and Cliff keeping this page pretty up to date, so that episode by episode, uh, you know which which lessons it was. If you want to go back to the uh, uh, the raising of the widow's son at Nain for whatever reason, then you can just come here, you find it on the list, and, and there's your two MP3s, and you can listen to those, and that chapter in the life of Christ is taken care of. So, okay, well, good to know. Let's start with a word of prayer, and we'll get right to walking on water this morning, shall we? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you for the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together. Father, we want to learn the, the principles of truth that you have revealed for us. Uh, we don't expect that uh, we're going to be walking on water by the end of today. But, Father, we do expect that we, uh, we will be accomplishing your work as we keep our eyes on you through any storm and any affliction that may hit us. And, Father, I pray that the, uh, the impact from this message might be clear and accurate, that we might be convicted uh, in terms of our own Christian walk, uh, where we are, what we're doing. And I pray that... Uh, the conviction of this message might be clear and powerful. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Walking on water. It's a message that actually has a a uh, soft spot on my heart. One of the earliest messages I ever delivered way back in 1991 was this very incident. And uh, I would cringe to try to listen to the tape anymore, so I won't do that. I'll just allow my fondness of memories to uh, savor that rather than listen to the actual message itself and cringe at how terrible and awkward it might have been. But uh, let's look at it. We can teach it in five minutes. You know, Jesus walks on the water. Uh, they were in a boat crossing and he stayed behind and caught up to them when they were halfway across, got in the boat, and then they made it the rest of the way there. There's a lot to teach with respect to that, though, and uh, we'll try to do that here. Starting in John 6. It's actually kind of unusual in the way that this event is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John. Typically, we will find the synoptic parallels. We'll find incidents recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but they're omitted in John. <clears throat> a lot of times, if we have an incident that's in John, it's only in John. It's not in the synoptic Gospels. 
Uh, but with the feeding of the 5,000, we found that they were all, all four Gospels had that event. And then immediately following the feeding of the 5,000 comes the walking on water episode. And that's omitted in the Gospel of Luke, which uh, is rather interesting. Luke, of course, was uh, emphasizing the humanity and uh, walking on water has nothing to do with humanity. So I guess I'm not surprised that Luke left that miracle out. Now, as we read it in John chapter 6, the 5,000 are fed. And notice the end of this episode. Um, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Why 12 baskets? Well, there's 12 disciples. These are the ones that were assisting him in, uh, in distributing the loaves. He couldn't he couldn't uh, hand out the food to everybody at one time, and so he had them all seated. He had them sitting down in different groups, uh, in different places there on the grass, and then he used the disciples to, to ferry the food back and forth, kind of like we do with communion. We bring three or four deacons up here or five deacons up here lately so that we can send one or two over to the side room and then have the others going out this way. And uh, and it goes much faster that way uh, rather than having the pastor try to run around the whole room and hand out bread and, and wine. For the communion service. So he's using these 12 guys to do this. And then when they're done, each one of them has a basket. There are 12 baskets left over. So they gather them up and fill 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come to the world. Now notice this is the crowd's reaction. The crowd's reaction. We actually are not told what the disciples' reaction is. They're kind of standing there kind of quietly holding their basket. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. All right, now that sets us off, uh, at least in the setting of the message. Uh, they're on the boat. He did not join them before they embarked, and they get halfway across when uh, this great storm hits. So let's get some points to break it down for you. First of all, it's quite a contrast. What we just finished with what we're tackling now, the Lord's most public miracle was followed by a crucial private miracle. I don't think there's any, well, I guess you could dispute it, but you'd have to show me a verse to dispute it, that uh, there was another miracle that was more public than this one. Uh, we don't, if, if there was, Scripture doesn't record the crowd size. With this one, we have the crowd size. He will later on feed 4,000. Um, there will be other miracles that he'll do in public uh, that you wonder, with all the crowds assembled in Jerusalem, is it possible that there were greater numbers? Maybe. But we don't know the uh, precise numbers in those cases. We do know the number here. And so I, I'm thinking of this as the Lord's most public miracle, or at least most public up to this point of time, followed by a very crucial private miracle. This miracle is so private, not only is it for simply the 12, but it is so private that it's way out in the middle of the lake. It's in the middle of the night. It's at 3 o'clock in the morning on a stormy night. And uh, where he's walking out there, and there can't be any other witnesses to this uh, to this event. So it uh, it does form quite a contrast: very public miracle, very private miracle. And we ought to think of the similar 
uh, nature of ministry ourselves and the things that we do in teaching the Word of God or uh, whatever your gift of ministry is. It doesn't have to be a teaching gift. There are things that could be very public and there are things that are very private. I like the way that we have our, our uh, uh, baptism services very public and we want to schedule one for this spring or this summer and we want it to be very public. We want it to be down at Barton Springs. We want it to be somewhere where all of Austin is watching so that we can, in a very visible way, demonstrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how we identify with that and proclaim that to this lost and dying world. So our baptism services are very pr- uh, public, but there are other things we have that are very private. And uh, I think if we can recognize the two natures there, then we can keep it, keep it in its proper perspective. Now, we already looked in John 6, the crowd, and we saw the crowd's response to the feeding of the 5,000. The crowd's response to the feeding of the 5,000 is indicated. It is indicated, it is recorded for us in Scripture. They had a political response. They wanted to make him king. They were excited about his powers to produce food. And think about what a great king that would make. You know, the ultimate welfare state. This, here's our king who can feed everybody. Right? And so, what, what, what a better king could we possibly imagine? Never mind uh, other issues, that he is the son of God, and that he has a message to deliver, and you have to pay attention to the message. We'll get into uh, later on here in chapter 6 with the bread of life message, where he says, I am the bread of life. And... Uh, he pretty well rebukes them that, that they weren't interested in the message. They just had their bellies filled, and then they liked it. They wanted their bellies filled again. We see that further down here in John chapter 6. And uh, he says, uh, this, is, this is why you're coming. You're not coming because of the signs. You're coming because your bellies were filled. The um, disciples' response, though, is not recorded. We're not told what their response was. And there's a lot of speculation about it then. Without speculating at this time, I'll speculate at the end of the hour, um, the disciples' response is not recorded, but it was of such a nature that Jesus immediately sent them back to the water. He immediately sent them back to the water. And we have the term immediately that's used both in Matthew and in Mark. In John, the term immediately is not used. And as a matter of fact, in John, uh, the indication is that uh, he went, uh, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It was close to evening before they started feeding everybody. Chances are it was exactly evening at this point where they got it all wrapped up and where, uh, where the uh, crowds were desiring to make him king. And so I don't really find a contrast between immediately and when evening came. Uh, given that it was nearly evening already, it was very late before they started feeding. And if, you're gonna, if you've ever tried to feed a party of 5,000, that, that takes a while. Even with 12 waiters that are you know, running the food uh, to the different areas there. Over in Matthew 14, verse 22, verse 21 says there were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. So we see that the crowds were still there when he's getting the disciples out of here. Get them out of here quick. See, now people read a lot into that. 
and a lot of commentators recognized that here was the crowd's response. They were getting whipped up into a patriotic fervor, a political fervor, uh, a, a draft movement to make him king and install him as king. And commentators will look at that in the John record. They'll look at the use of immediately in the Matthew and Mark record, and they'll, they'll link those together and say, ah, see, Jesus was trying to protect his disciples from that spirit of, of uh, political fervor. And that may be, I, I could see that. I mean, if that was a danger, if that was something that, that he thought that they would be wrapped up in, clearly Simon the Zealot would have been wrapped up in that. He was a political figure. The Zealots were uh, were terrorists. They were, uh, uh, not to use the term terrorists, they were unconventional guerrilla warfare specialists uh, pursuing their political causes by non-traditional means. Uh, you know, there's a terrorist. That's the, the nature of it. Um, so he would have been caught up in that, clearly. But I think there was more than just the crowd's reaction. And by the time we get through with the Gospel of Mark's account, I think that at best, the political considerations were only a secondary thought. That there was something much more urgent that the Lord had to deal with. And he had to deal with it immediately because their response was not a good response. And we're told that explicitly in the Gospel of Mark. And so I would rather go with what the Bible tells us and not speculate over the, uh, con- the connection with the, uh, the 5,000 and their political uh, hopes. So the disciples' response is not recorded, but was of such a nature that Jesus immediately sent them back to the water. And we, we do the same thing. There's, there's certain things uh, as parents with children that if we observe a problem and we kind of we have to make a decision. Is this something that, that we can just kind of keep in our mind for later on and later on we can make a comment about it or later on we can follow up? Or is this so serious that we have to stop it right here, right now, go to your room right now, uh, we have to deal with this immediately. We can't let this linger even until morning or even until uh, the end of the, the, the party or whatever. We say, no, the party's over now <laughs> and that kind of thing. All right. So what is it that's so urgent that it can't wait until later for a follow up? Why is it that it has to be an immediate departure? Get these 12 gone. OK. And it may be more than the 12. I think Matthias was present. I think that uh, Joseph called Barsabbas was present. The two that they put forward to be candidates uh, uh, in Acts chapter 1 were told that they were eyewitnesses of everything from the baptism to the resurrection. Uh, there's no reason to assume that they weren't present on this occasion as well. They were probably in the boat uh, and at the feeding of the 5,000. They just weren't of the 12, so they didn't get a basket. All right. With the twelve safely away, the Lord then dismissed the crowd. And both Matthew and Mark are very explicit about this, that, that the disciples were sent away immediately, and Christ, having been left behind, was uh, then dismissing the crowds. So in verse 22 of Matthew 14, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. That's the record in Mark as well. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. And then after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. So Matthew and Mark are both in agreement that the disciples were sent off to sea and then he dismissed the crowds. Then he went up on the mountain to pray, which is the second point of study. 
Before scaring his disciples, Jesus bathed this work assignment in prayer. Before scaring his disciples, did Jesus know what he was going to do? When he, got, when he told them, get in the boat, I'll catch up to you. <laughs> was, do you think inside he was just laughing? He said, go ahead, sail across, I'll catch up to you. <laughs> You've got to imagine what was in his mind. I think the indications, again, if, if John 6 is any indication, uh, we have the verse a little bit earlier where um, where uh, this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Uh, Jesus had an intention, and his intention was to walk across the Sea of Galilee. In fact, his first intention was to pass the boat and actually beat them to the other side. We'll discuss that here momentarily. So before scaring his disciples, Jesus bathed this work assignment in prayer. He had previously wanted to get away and have a prayer time. He started to get away to have a prayer time. He took his disciples aside to have a prayer time. And then they got interrupted with this Bible class to the 5,000 plus the meal after the Bible class. So, uh, I mean, you understand after a long day of Bible teaching followed by uh, dinner, you don't get home until considerably late. And then, uh, and then you got to have extra time in, in terms of prayer, especially knowing that there's a tough message coming up. Knowing that there's a message coming up that may not be well received. Knowing that there are discipline issues that have to be addressed, as is in the case here. It's not for a good reason that he marched them onto the boat and sent them sailing. Um, and so... They're going to have to get scared. This is what it's going to take to pierce through some things. And it's not going to be um, maybe well received at all. And so he focuses his prayer time in that regard. So he sent the crowds away. He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. For the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night... I'm reading from Matthew 22, uh, Matthew 14, by the way. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I do not be afraid. Stop being afraid. And so Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you in the water, on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And we'll talk about that as well. Peter gets a lot of criticism for this. So we'll deal with that. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You certainly are God's son. So he bathes the work of Simon in prayer. Now, let's remind ourselves under point three that this storm is the second such storm to terrify the disciples. It was about nine episodes ago in Galilean ministry event number 28. If you may recall, calming the sea. Galilean ministry number 28, calming the sea. That uh, they had previously been caught up in a gale. You can read about it in Matthew 8, Mark 4, or Luke 8. Remember, that was where the Lord was sleeping. 
and they had to wake him up. He was asleep in the boat, and they were terrified because they were going to drown. The, the water was crashing over. Actually, the boat was beginning to fill with water, and the Lord was still asleep. And they woke him up and said, don't you care? We're all about to die. So they had a fear test, and they blew it. And he w- woke up, and he's, you know, why are you afraid? Peace be still. He calms the waves, and they're all amazed. In fact, if we look at... I'm I'm in Matthew, so let's stay in Matthew. Matthew 8, just a few pages back. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. What irony. Matthew 8, 25. Save us, that's sozo. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Same word but have everlasting life. And so he came to save us that we might not perish. And here they are, terrified for their physical life, terrified of this storm. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And even their, their, their crying out in fear is an indictment. <laughs> that they have no faith, no confidence that he's going to accomplish what the Father sent for him to do. See, They should have complete confidence that whatever else happens on this very night, Jesus Christ is not going to drown in this boat. He can't. Because it's his destiny to go to the cross and redeem the human race. So they should have a sense of immortality and a sense of confidence, at least on this night, you know, that uh, I guess they could have some selfish fear and say, okay, Jesus isn't going to drown, but we could all drown. (laughs) Except what has he been teaching them? He's been teaching them and preparing them for their own ministry. And so it would make no sense that uh, it, it, it almost is like um, the, the Exodus generation and they get into the wilderness and they, they get all scared and they get negative and they get grumbling and they say, you brought us out here to kill us, right? And they accused Jehovah, they accused Yahweh of bringing them out of bondage, taking them in the wilderness, and the only reason he brought them in the wilderness was to kill them. Well, how insane is that? If he wanted to kill them, he could have done it back in Egypt. All those plagues that struck Egypt could have killed all the... Or he could have gotten them halfway through the Red Sea and dumped the Red Sea on top of them, right? (laughs) So they came through the Red Sea. Uh, The Red Sea did come crashing down and killed all the Egyptians, So it's not like, you know, God didn't have bad aim or anything. He knew what he was doing. And if he wanted to kill Israel, he could have killed them right there in the Red Sea. So this idea, save us, Lord, we perish. What a lack of faith. What a lack of understanding. So he said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? You men of little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea and became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, the disciples are trying to put some things together, and they're falling short. You can tell by their question that they're falling short. They don't quite have it down. They don't exactly know. They've accepted he is the Christ. They've accepted that he is the Messiah. Philip told, uh, 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 Nathaniel told Philip that, that, you know, we found the one that was uh, spoken of. We found the Christ, you know, and he said, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, They knew that he was the Messiah. They knew that he was the Christ. They knew that he was the Lamb of God. Did they completely understand the the power that he had available to him for these miracles? I don't think so, because it seems like with each growing miracle, they're overwhelmed. 
And then the idea of what kind of man is this? Did they have a complete grasp on his deity? I don't think they did. And I don't think they did even... If they didn't in the first storm, they don't have it in this storm either until this event, until they see him walking on the water. So we'll talk about it. I want to look real quickly, if I can, here. Matthew 8, I wanted to see if that's Anthropos in um, Matthew 8:27. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this? Um... Okay, no, Anthropos isn't there. They just use the demonstrative pronoun, hutos, unless there's a text question there. One Unkyo manuscript and a few others have Anthropos in there, but most manuscripts don't. Okay, so I won't make too much out of the idea of what kind of man is this. It's a general question of... Who is this guy? Okay, good to know. So this storm is the second such storm to terrify the disciples. But this time, though, the Lord's not in the boat. Should that make a difference? If the Lord was going to take care of them, does it make a difference whether he's in the boat or not in the boat? Is he going to take care of them or not? If he is going to take care of them, does he have to be in the boat to take care of them? Now, the centurion had a greater faith than they are presently expressing because the centurion said, you don't even have to go to my house. Just say the word here and and the child will be healed way back there. He understood that geography was irrelevant to an omnipotent, omnipresent God. Omnipotent, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. He said, I too am a man under authority. I understand chain of command. I understand delegated responsibilities. He says, if you give the word here, it'll be done over there. And Jesus said, amazing. I've not found such great faith amongst the sons of Israel. So here they are being faced with a geography test, perhaps an omnipresence test, and they're not getting it and they're afraid and they'll get afraid even more once he does come because he's walking on the water. (laughs) All right. So it's a test of faith again. This time he's not in the boat. Doesn't make a difference. It shouldn't. But they uh, they're afraid with the storm. Evidently, it's quite a storm. The idea that in the fourth watch of the night, they're still only halfway across uh, the, the lake is not that wide. It's, a, it's seven miles at its widest point towards the northern reaches, probably where they were. It was only maybe about a four or five mile uh, crossing. They could have handled that in, in half the, the night. Um, and yet here they are in the fourth hour of the night, the, about 3 a.m., and they're still only about halfway there. It shows you what the contrary winds and the contrary waves will do. Uh, if you've ever tried to, to row against a strong current, or if you've ever tried to sail against the wind, you realize that this is quite a quite a deal there's a lot of uh history or a lot of geography studies that we could do with respect to the sea of galilee that we don't understand i think as much when we see it on a flat map we say okay there's the sea of galilee there's a west side there's an east side uh the river comes in from the north and it goes out from the south and we kind of got a a geographical picture of it but that's only in the two dimensions of a flat map we don't realize until you look at a a three-dimensional map or you look at a, a, a topographical map that the, the mountains that ring the Sea of Galilee can rise up to 2,000 feet above sea level. Uh, and, and the lake itself is 700 feet below sea level. So there is a huge 
uh, elevation difference between the surrounding mountains and the, and the lake itself. And the, the air is much cooler on those mountaintops, 2,000 feet above sea level, and the water is very warm down there, fed by hot springs and, and other water sources. And so that temperature difference there produces these massive storms. A breeze comes in, hits the hot water on that lake, and, and uh, some massive storms get chopped up in no time. So some of the some of the things you can read about in Unger's Bible Dictionary, you read about in uh, Wycliffe Historical uh, Encyclopedia of Bible Lands. There's different resources available to get that kind of uh, geographic information. Point four: Divine sovereignty prevented them from reaching the other side, and ensured that this Bible class would administer maximum impact. Divine sovereignty prevented them from reaching the other side and ensured this Bible class to administer maximum impact. What kept them from reaching the other side? God. <laughs> Divine sovereignty. See, I, I have no problems with the conflict between sovereignty and free will. There is no conflict. God is sovereign. <laughs> Where's the conflict? Now, he allows us our decisions. But even in the process of allowing us our decisions, we're still the finite creatures placed in realms that are beyond our control. Beyond anything that we can possibly decide. We can't decide the weather. We can't decide the circumstances and details of, of life in many respects. We're just placed in the conditions we're placed in, and we're accountable for the choices we make within those conditions. I think uh, so we've already read in Matthew the nature of the storm. Um, in Mark, let's look at John. In John 6, it might be a little bit more vivid. John 6, 18 and 19. See, in Matthew, we're told the boat was already a long distance from land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in Mark, we're told... Mark is kind of interesting because he's up on the mountain still, and when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the wind at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch. See, he's still on the shore, and he can see them halfway across the, the, uh, the lake, two miles out or three miles out. In John, the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. So uh, again, we're not exactly sure how far north they were. The, uh, the lake itself is seven miles at its widest point. Um, it may, if they were in the northern region, probably, then it was only maybe about four miles across total. And yet, how far had they rode? Three or four miles. They'd rode three or four miles, but how far had they, had they traveled? About two miles. Okay? And if you've ever rode contrary to the currents or against the wind, you can, uh, that's very easy to do. <laughs> you can row for five miles and only be two miles away from your starting point. Because the currents and the wind is working against you there. So, they're not being allowed to get to Bethsaida or to get to Capernaum. They're not being allowed to get to the other side. The setting for this Bible class has to be here to have its maximum impact. 
this is where this is a class they will never forget. A class they will never forget. It's kind of like that Sunday morning when I thought I was having that heart attack and just said I need to go to the hospital and they drove me down there to Seton. You know, <laughs> you don't forget a Sunday morning like that. Or when I was 13 years old and uh, Pastor Jensen actually had a seizure in the uh, in the pulpit. He collapsed and, and uh, EMS had to come to take him. Um, so that's that's a, a service you don't remember. I, I, could, I can't remember specific messages from that many years ago. I, I remember he taught the book of Revelation. I remember he taught Romans. I remember he taught uh, the light system versus the darkness system, a doctrinal study that Carl Neal developed in California. Um, but I don't remember any individual messages. But I remember that day. <laughs> all right. Because it was the pastor collapsing and we were all praying and scared and, and the ambulance comes and we're praying even more and all that stuff. Well, these 12 are never going to forget the night on the Sea of Galilee that the storm was knocking them around. And then here comes Jesus walking across the lake. It is definitely a Bible class that will administer maximum impact. Now, let's harmonize. The whole incident. We're going to give you a sequence, A through F, of every step of the night. And we'll harmonize and sequencize. Sequencing. That's a verb. I looked it up. Harmonizing and sequencing the incident. Sequence is a verb as well as a noun. Did you know that? So harmonizing and sequencing the incident. And we're going to spell it out step by step, A through F, of everything that happened here this night. While still on land at 3 a.m., Jesus observed the disciples struggling in the middle of the sea. While still on land at 3 a.m., Jesus observed the disciples struggling in the middle of the sea. The phrase fourth hour of the night, fourth watch of the night, that was a Roman measurement that divided the, uh, the hours out from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. into four equal blocks of three hours apiece. So the fourth watch begins at 3 a.m. and ends at 6 a.m. We're not, it's not that precise to say it was at the exact beginning of that uh, fourth watch, although one of the prepositions kind of indicates that. It could have been any point during the fourth watch and any time in between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. But one of the prepositions that's used, I think, has a greater precision to it than the others that are used. So um, I, I tend to think that it was right there at 3 a.m., but it may not have been. Still, it was dark. It was not yet dawn. And, uh, and they spent the better part of the night trying to get across. They started at sundown, at evening. And uh, here they are in the middle of the night, almost morning, and, and uh, they're still not across the sea. He sees them from a distance, observed them uh, while he was still on land. And, and whatever, if, if physical eyes were able to see that, I don't know if it was so dark that, uh, that uh, they weren't observable to physical eyes. Maybe it was simply prophetic eyes that allowed him to see that. It's, it's not clear, but he did see them. From the distance. Then he starts walking, and as he's walking, he intends to pass them by. He intends to pass them by. And that's not recorded in Matthew or John, but it's very specifically spelled out in Mark chapter 6 and verse 48. He saw that they were struggling. He saw that they were struggling. And his first intention was just to walk on past. We see, again, in verse 48b, the second part of the verse. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night, 
He came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. He intended to pass by them. How many words is that? He intended to pass by them. Six words in the English. It's fewer in Greek. But we could spend a month on just those words. He intended to pass by them. Because I think that phrase pinpoints a lot of things about the ministry of Jesus Christ. And what he knew, what he had to learn, what he didn't know. Remember, he laid aside his privileges. He was not tapping into omniscience. That he may have had a lot of plans, a lot of intentions that the Father then demonstrated otherwise. See? We discussed that when he was 12 years old in the temple. And he said, did you not know I must be about my father's business? And the question, rather than being an insulting question to his parents, like, what are you so stupid? You didn't know this? We, we looked at that question and, fr- and phrased, well, maybe rather than an insulting question, it, maybe it was a respectful question. And maybe rather than being negative, it was being affirmative in its, in its response that Jesus himself was learning. He says, did you not know? I must be about my father's business. In, in other words, if, if that wasn't your viewpoint on the will of God, maybe I have it wrong. Maybe I have it wrong. See? Kind of like a husband and wife. And the husband says, you know, I think it's God's will for us to uh, to do this. And the wife says, you know, I don't think it is. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't think that Ferrari fits with our family's needs. And all right. Hard to get the car seat back in that. There's, you know, there's no back seat in the Ferrari. Um, and so you can ask a question. Another way to rephrase that, did you not know I must be about my father's business, would be, was this not your conviction of the will of God? Was this not your conviction of, of the will of God? And, and instead of being dismissive or negative, it's, it's actually affirmative and, and positive in the Lord asking, well, if that wasn't your view on it, then maybe I've got the wrong view on it. Maybe my timing is, maybe I'm not ready for this yet. And so, however we choose to interpret that question, you can't deny that, that uh, he subjected himself back to their authority and he departed with them and went back uh, at that very moment. That he accepted that their view of things took authority over his view of things because he was still under their house, under their parental authority at the age of 12. And so, I think you have that incident, you have this incident, you have the Garden of Gethsemane incident where he's praying about the Father's will, if it's possible, let this cut pass me by. I think we have glimpses in terms of the human nature of Jesus Christ who doesn't know everything. Now, the divine nature, of course, God the Son, he is omnipresent, omniscient, always has been, always will be. He knows everything there is to know. But during his incarnation, he chose not to function with his omni-attributes. So he chose not to exercise omniscience. He limited himself to the things that he learned, to the knowledge that he could acquire in human uh, acquisition of knowledge or in prophetic acquisition of knowledge as a spirit-filled Old Testament prophet. He, he, he was privy to, to prophetic information that was beyond the human realm, but he never tapped into the divine omniscience that would have been obviously even beyond prophetic insight.
Does that make sense? I mean, he was a prophet, so he could know things as a prophet. He told Philip, he said, while you were, or told Nathaniel, whichever one, he said, while you were under the, the, the tree, I saw you. That was with a prophetic insight. Not that he was tapping into omniscience at that point, but because as a spirit-filled prophet, those were the, those were the glimpses that they were provided. So he's intending to pass by them, and we, have to, we don't know the motive. What was he intending to do? Was he intending to beat them there? Uh, was he intending to lead the way as a guide? Was he going to be the, uh, the, the, the pillar by day and cloud by, or the cloud by day, pillar of fire by night? Was he going to be the guide going in front of the boat saying, you know, row this way and, 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 and be the, the pilot to lead them into the, into the shore? We don't know. Was he just going to pass by them as a test? Did he know that they were going to see him? Uh, did he, uh, was he going to test their faith and their fear? Was he hoping that they would invite him into the boat? Hitchhiking, as it were. <laughs> um, I do know that he does not get into the boat until they welcome him. Or was he intending to just get to the other side and wait for them there and teach them the class there? Saying, what took you so long? Right? Don't exactly know. But we do know that this was his intention, but the father had other intentions. And, and there's a lot we can learn from that. Because it was his intention to pass them by, but there was work to be done here. And they stop him. Uh, Peter asks a question of him. Peter gets out of the boat. There's work here to be done. They have lessons to be learned. And they have to be learned here. Remember, Christ did nothing apart from the father's will. He says, I cannot speak of my own initiative. And so the message that he gives him here, when he says, take courage and desire to not be afraid, when he gives him the, the threefold rebuke or exhortation, that's in the Father's will. The Father intended this message to be at this place at this time, not to be on the coast, not to be on the shore. So Jesus' intention to pass by them and not say anything to them, that intention was wrong. I wasn't struck by lightning. <laughs> I didn't say sinful. There's nothing sinful about his intention. He wasn't defying the Father's will. But it was not yet clear to him what the Father's will was. So he had an intention. His intention was to pass by. King David had an intention. His intention was to build the temple. His intention was wrong. Was it sinful? As a matter of fact, David was praised for having the right desires, even though his intention itself was wrong. Because he didn't know the greater plan that the father had for Solomon to build the temple. So David had an intention, but the intention was wrong. Jesus has an intention to pass by them. That's what he intended. But that's not what happened. See, and... I don't, I'm, not, I'm not afraid to, to say that his intention was wrong because that's humanity. When, you subject, when you're subject to finite limitations, you don't have all the information. And so you have intentions based upon what you do have. And yet you're willing to be shown otherwise when further information becomes available. Say, well, Father, based on my present understanding, um, these are my intentions. And you pray about it. And you proceed forward in, in, in faith. And then if 
circumstances change or other information comes available to you and you see you have a, a clearer picture than you had back then, well then, uh, then what are you going to do? You're going to stick with your original intentions because, well, by golly, that's what I said I was going to do, right? I said I was going to do this, and that's what I'm going to do. See, I put down a, I put down pre-med for a major at the University of Washington. Where did that come from? And I don't even remember doing it because my dreams were, were to become a homicide investigator. And that, I'm not sure which came first, the homicide investigator or the, or the pre-med doctor. I don't know what, where that came from. Because, I mean, for all, I have told the story a thousand times that this was my intention. It was my intention from the time I was 16. And I was working as a waiter and had all these police officers in my restaurant. I had Chief Perkins and I had uh, Bill, came to Texas, found out Bill Miller was a barbecue place. Up there, Bill Miller was a sergeant with the Lake Forest Park Police Department. And so I knew all these police officers, had all these intentions. My intentions were to become a homicide investigator. Well, the other day I find an old transcript. I found an old uh, application in the University of Washington. And sure enough, I list on my intended major as an incoming freshman. I listed pre-med. I couldn't even be. I look, I, I was, if my eyes hadn't been looking at it, I, I'd have been in shock disbelief. So I guess we have intentions at different times. And maybe we're clueless as to what our intentions are. But that's because we're finite creatures. And keep in mind that in the first Advent incarnation, the infinite God, the Son, had humbled himself. He had emptied himself under kenosis. That he had made the sovereign decision to not exercise his infinite potential. Now, he can't stop being God because he's immutable. He can't stop being infinite. He can't stop being omnipresent. He can't stop being omnipotent or omniscient. But he chooses to stop exercising those attributes. He chooses to function under the limitations that you and I have as finite beings. And so because he's working with a limited or finite understanding, he is subject to having wrong intentions. Not sinful, just wrong. Because his intention is uh, has to be modified when the circumstances change. And that's what happens here. Anyway, there's a lot to question about that as a guide, as a test, as a rebuke, as, a, as a, whatever his, his thought was behind that. He had uh, put a lot of prayer into it that night before, and he saw what they were doing. He got out, started walking, and then uh, he had an intention to just pass right by them. But then when they cried out and and had all their terror and all their fear. And when they accused him of being a ghost, intentions changed. He stopped right where he was and said, we've got to have Bible class. <laughs> all right. So that was his intention. Thirdly, the disciples are afraid of ghosts. The disciples are afraid of ghosts. Phantasms. From the, he- from the Greek... Phantasma, P-H-A-N-T-A-S-M-A, accent on the first alpha. So it's phantasma, phantasma, P-H-A-N-T-A-S-M-A, phantasma. It's interesting. What a pagan term. (laughs) You know, people ask, do you believe in ghosts? 
Yes and no. I mean, if you're going to ask me a dumb question, let me give you a, a dumb answer so that you have to follow up. You know, do you believe in UFOs? Yes and no. You know, do you believe in Bigfoot? Yes and no. Yeah, whatever it is, Easter Bunny coming up. Now, well, yes and no. But here's why, see. And so when you, when you give them that yes and no answer, it doesn't mean anything. But it means that they have to then follow up, right? They have to say, well, what do you mean by that? Or what do you mean yes and what do you mean no? Okay. Um, I believe in demons. All right. I believe in fallen angels. I believe in evil spirits because the Bible talks about fallen angels and evil spirits and demons. Uh, what are you talking about when you talk about phantasms, when you talk about uh, poltergeists, you talk about ghosts, you talk about uh, all these other silly things? Do I believe in all that uh, occultism and, and demonism and witchcraft? No, not in those vocabulary terms, but I do believe in demons. And I do believe that demons are, are there to inspire terror because I got the scriptures to back that up. I believe in UFOs, no, but I believe that that the fallen angels are the uh, principalities and powers of the air. They uh, can be pulling off a lot of these hoaxes and, and acting as if they're extraterrestrial life, and they are. They're not earthly life, they're angelic life. So I guess you can call them extraterrestrial, so far as that goes. Um, and I think there, I've read some very plausible uh, what-if scenarios that point ahead to the post-rapture uh, unveiling of fallen angels as uh, aliens, as extraterrestrial beings that show up on the world scene to try to bring humanity into a, a more uh, galactic community. Kind of a plausible bit of fiction. So do I believe that uh, UFOs are, are really just demons or opposing fallen angels and so forth? I, that's pretty reasonable. Um, so far as that goes, Bigfoot, <laughs> I believe in demons, I believe in fallen angels, you know, that could be posing as all kinds of things. The disciples are afraid of ghosts. And it's interesting, the phrase, it's identical vocabulary, both in Matthew and in Mark, in Mark 6:49, uh, when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost. They supposed that it was a phantasma. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. They saw a ghost. They saw him thinking he was a ghost. They didn't recognize, oh, there's Jesus walking by. They just saw him, not recognizing him as him, and thinking that it was a ghost. Sailors are naturally superstitious anyway. At least they're reputed to be. Maybe they've always been that way. I don't know. These guys are... I don't know if it's fair to call them sailors. They're fishermen who who sailed. But anyway, they're afraid of ghosts. What are we afraid of? Are we, do we have our superstitions? Or do we, do we uh, you know, like Ergen Cantor talks about in breaking a mirror or walking under a ladder or other, other superstitions that we have, do we maintain those even past our salvation to the point where we shouldn't even have, be thinking of them anymore? Does next Friday bother you? A week from Friday when we have Friday the 13th coming up. Ooh, I'm not going to go anywhere that night. Say, <laughs> why would we be afraid of ghosts? Why would we maintain a superstition? 
Well, they obviously did. They had this as a fear. And so Jesus exhorts them. He gives them a threefold exhortation. Basically, take courage. I am. Stop being afraid. Threefold message. Immediately he spoke with them and said to them. See, you've got the word immediately again. Just like you had immediately in verse 45, you've got immediately in verse 50. But immediately he spoke to them. So he had an intention to pass by. But when they cried out in their fear that it's a ghost and they cried out in fear, then he immediately, those intentions stopped, new intentions, and he teaches He gives them this exhortation, three-part exhortation. Take courage, I am, stop being afraid. Take courage is tharseta, tharseta. Second person plural, present active imperative from the verb tharseo, number 2293. Amazingly enough, tharseo is a pretty common verb in uh, secular literature, But when we have it in the Bible, in the New Testament or in the Septuagint for the Old Testament, the only time it ever shows up in the Bible is when it's an imperative, when it's a command. It doesn't have to be a command. It could speak of an activity. It could be in the indicative. It could describe uh, things going on that, you know, soldiers were uh, facing a, a, a powerful opponent, but they took courage and so they held their ground. I mean, you can use the verb in a non-imperative fashion. And the, the poets do, the, the philosophers do, the secular writers do, but the scripture writers never do, ever. It's always in an, an imperative, and it's, it's interesting in the way that it's an active voice. In a lot of things we receive, they're passive voices, like be strong. Be strong is be strengthened it's as a passive voice. How, how, how can any believer be strong in an active voice? How could you or me or any other believer on the planet actively produce our own strength? We can't. The only thing we can do is receive his strength as the word of God transforms us, as his empowerment enters into us, as his provision is embraced by us. If, if we try to produce our own strength, we'd fail. So every time we have an imperative to be strong, we find that it's in the passive voice and we should render it be strengthened every single time. It bugs me that the New American Standard usually renders it be strong. So someday when the Bolander Study Bible comes out, it's going to be be strengthened every time that it occurs because that's what it is. But here, take courage is an active voice. Take courage is an active voice, and it's combined with do not be afraid, which is a prohibition. Stop being afraid. And it comes to the active decisions that you and I have to make. If we choose to be courageous, or if we choose to continue worrying, it's a choice we're making. It's a choice we're making. Who are we going to serve? Choose you this day whom you're going to serve. Are we going to pursue in fear? Are we going to pursue in confidence? So tharseo is an active verb, and, and he is addressing them in the, well, he's addressing a group, that's why it's second person plural, but as a present active imperative, it should be a continuous action in present time imperative, continually take courage. It's like continually take up your armor, continually be encouraged, be enheartened, be courageous. 
fascinating word study on Tharseo. So take courage. It's a command we're supposed to do. Stop worrying. Take courage. Now, on a volitional basis, how do you do that? (laughs) Do you do that just for no reason? Or do you do that because the Word of God is producing the faith in which to do this? You're not going to do this in human efforts. This has to be done by faith. Where does faith come? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So if I'm going to take courage, it's not for no reason. It's going to be with cycling doctrine. It's going to be cycling the Word of God in your soul. That's the faith rest drill. So you take courage. And you stop worrying. And you realize, okay, here's a test. I'm going to face it with courage. I'm going to smile at the future. Even before I know what the provision for the test is, I'm going to still smile at the future because I know that the provision's there. I'm going to choose to be courageous. Are you watching the news about these British guys that got captured by Iran, the sailors? They're bugging me. And I wonder, what would American Marines have done? Say, would they have allowed themselves to be captured? Would they have, you know, returned fire and gone out? I mean, I just don't see, I hope, that American Marines would not have just allowed themselves to be captured without a shot fired. You know, I would think that American Marines would have locked and loaded and shot it out. And that the only way they would have been taken capture would have been if they'd have been, you know, disabled through gunfire or somehow uh, paralyzed with injuries and overwhelmed uh, by superior numbers. I, I just can't see 15 American sailors and Marines kidnapped without a shot. And then making these videos days later. Not without a tremendous amount of torture. You know, when John McCain, when the, when the Vietnam... POWs were making their videos, it was with torture being applied. And the tremendous uh, faith of Jeremiah Denton and what he did, reading from their script, reading word for word every word that the Vietnamese wanted him to read, while at the same time his eyes were blinking uh, Morse code, the word torture, over and over and over again. And uh, amazing. And the Americans missed it at first until his wife said, why is, why is he blinking so funny? <laughs> and then when she pointed out that he was blinking kind of funny, then the military intelligence guy said, wait a minute. And they started observing the blinking, and they observed it was Morse code, and he was spelling out torture over and over and over again. He spelled out torture like 15 times in the span of the speech that he was making, reading from their script. Now, that's talent. I thought, you know, that's, like, that's worse than patting your head and rubbing your tummy if you're trying to... You're reading from a script... And trying to blink, unbelievable. Anyway, oh, and he got more torture once the Vietnamese found out that he'd done that. But you choose to take courage. Because courage is simply an attitude. Courage is a mindset that if God is for us, who shall be against us? Courage is a mindset that though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust in him. Courage is an attitude. It shapes your thinking, shapes your words, shapes your deeds. It's an operational function if you want to put it in the terms of faith, hope, and love that we're looking at uh, in the First Corinthians series. Courage is an operational function because it's an attitude. It's a realm in which we can operate if we choose to do so. Or we can operate in a sphere of fear 
if we choose to function there. But it's our choice to make because we have the option. All right, the second phrase is I am. And this is where we're out of time, so we'll come back to Ego Amy next week. I don't like the translation, it is I. Take courage, it is I. I prefer to render this, take courage. I am. Stop fearing. Take courage, I am. Stop fearing. And um, the ego Amy statement of I am is powerful. This is the declaration of Jehovah. This is the declaration of I am that I am. The, the memorial name for Jehovah, uh, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. And we will have to spend some time on the doctrine of I am. And we'll look at that a little bit next week. Like I say, we're at the top of the hour now. And uh, this is a good place to good place to stop. Any questions? Anything before we close with prayer? <laughs> yes and no. The Easter Bunny? Yes and no. <laughs> and you say, well, why yes? And I say, well, why no? No. I figure if people are dumb enough to ask me if I believe in Santa Claus, or if I believe in the Easter Bunny, or if I believe in the Tooth Fairy, if you're that dumb to ask me a question like that, then you're entitled to a dumb answer coming back. That's answering a fool according to his folly. I don't know. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the example of Jesus Christ who had an intention and then had to change that intention when the circumstances uh, were different. And I pray that we would be willing to do that, be humble to do that, Father, realizing that our intentions are what they are, but it's your plan that matters, and we want to be obedient to your plan and your design in all that we say and all that we do, even with every thought, Father. Take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. We thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen.